All right. Uh, Fred has sent you the, the uh, uh, note packet for our study of the Gospel of John. I, I hope you're able to, uh, to either print that out or download it on your computer or whatever you do with those. And I'd like to turn your attention to that now. I want to do a couple of introductory things, and then we'll get into the first chapter of the Gospel of John and momentarily. All right, uh, let me just, uh, if you have your packet, I'll hold this up. You have, you have a copy of the synthetic chart. That's the very first page. Uh, synthetic chart, you, you may have seen these before if you've been with me for a while. Every time we do a book, I show you one of these. But this is uh, Swindoll. I had to do one of these for each book of the Bible when I was in graduate school. But um, mine are good, but Chuck Swindoll's are now in the public domain, and they are far better than mine. So I downloaded his. And the nice thing about a synthetic chart is it gives you the big picture. And you can look at that, and you can look, look at the segments at the top. And then uh, in the bottom part of the chart, are very key thing, key themes, and of course, with the Gospel of John, the most important theological themes are the seven great I am statements of Jesus, and that is the one of the ways in which you can outline the book. I uh, draw a lot on those, as you will see in just a minute, from John six through John fifteen, and so it's a wonderful book. It's unique, and I'd like you to turn. Then it would be on the second page it would look something like this, is a copy of a PowerPoint slide that I use. I want you to understand something about John, the Gospel of John, and there are a number of bullet statements. So if you see that, let me highlight them, and I want to just draw your attention to the uniqueness of the Gospel of John. John was no doubt familiar with the synoptics. Now, when you see the term synoptics, that comes from a synopsis, the, the American or English word synopsis. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synopsis, they're synoptics. They kind of follow a chronological account of Jesus' life, his public ministry. John doesn't do that. John's gospel is unique. 90% of the gospel of John is unique. Another way of saying that, only 10% of the gospel of John do you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you, you, you see something very significant about John. It is a unique gospel. And as I also write in that, um, that first bullet, it's more theological and less historical. And you'll see that in just a minute as I try to, to, to emphasize a couple of things. Number two, bullet number two, John draws mainly upon events and discourses not found in the other gospels to prove explicitly that Jesus is God in the flesh. The main thesis of the book of John is Jesus is the God-man. He's not just a man. He is that, but he's the God-man. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. That's Jesus. His gospel bullet number three is therefore topical not merely chronological. I hope you understand what I mean by that. John is interested in proving a thesis, and he uses key topics throughout the three-and-a-half-year ministry, public ministry of Jesus, to prove his thesis. He's less concerned about a tight chronology. 
bullet number four. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which was two-year ministry. John also deals with the one year of ministry of Jesus in Judea, and that's the beginning of the book, which you'll see as we go through that. Bullet, the next bullet, only two of John's recorded miracles are found in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, walking on water and a feeding of 5,000. The other miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John are unique to John. They don't appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Number The next bullet, John records the best eyewitness description of the upper room meal, the upper room discourse, which is John 14, 13, 14, 15, 16, and into 17. The others mention it, but John gives us a thoroughgoing description of that very important event right before Jesus goes to the cross. Second to last bullet, John mentions three or even perhaps four Passovers, not just one, which helps us to understand that the total public ministry of Jesus was between three and three and a half years. That's how we can reach that conclusion. It's from John's gospel. And then finally, uh, in terms of these bullets, John admits a lot of things that you do not see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The theme of the kingdom, that's in Matthew. Narrative parables, that's in Matthew. The genealogies, Matthew and Luke. Transfiguration, Matthew 17. The childhood and temptation and sayings of Jesus found in the synoptics. That doesn't appear in the Gospel of John. However, John includes much material not mentioned in the synoptics. These are some examples. First five chapters, the resurrection of Lazarus, the reinstatement of Peter, John chapter 21, the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and a lot of the dialogues of Jesus. So when you, when you begin, as we are now doing, with the study of the Gospel of John, I want to drive a point home that I don't want you to ever forget. John's Gospel is unique. 90% of John's Gospel is unique. You do not see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? because John is trying to prove the thesis. And that thesis is Jesus is the God-man. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. Jesus Christ, the God-man. And if you can keep that in center stage of your thinking, that's going to be very helpful in the weeks and months to come as we study this together. Now, I kind of hurried through that, and I apologize if I did, if I did go too fast. But are there any questions? This kind, I'm trying to drive home the uniqueness of John's gospel, and I, I hope we accomplish that. Any questions? John, are you saying Jesus, Jesus is the Godhead or God-man? God-man. God-man. G-O-D-M-A-N. Yeah. Okay. That's very important to, to make sure that's clear. Yeah, yeah, the God-man. Okay, good. Any, any other questions? All right. Very good. Now, if you're following your notes, uh, I have a segment there, Distinctives of John's Gospel. Do you see that? Let me rattle those off real quickly. There's, these aren't long. They're not real difficult. First of all, first distinctive. These are the unique distinctives. John stresses the discourses of Jesus meaning his teaching discourses. John stresses the teaching of Jesus, not the narrative. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the narrative story of Jesus. John doesn't. John stresses the teaching discourses of Jesus. Hence, those seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am uh, the good shepherd, etc., etc. Number two, John develops themes like light, life, love, and truth as they apply to Jesus. So it's kind of philosophical. John is interested in developing the major themes of the God-man. He's the light of the world. He is the author of the resurrection life. He is the epitome of love, and he is the incarnation of truth. They're the themes that are developed in the Gospel of John. You're going to see them right away in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Number three, John's Gospel gives more focus to the Holy Spirit than the other three. I don't mean they don't mention the Spirit, but John has a long discourse by Jesus Christ on the Holy Spirit. This is in John chapter 16. A whole chapter on it, as well as throughout the book, he keeps mentioning the importance of the coming Holy Spirit. Number four, John stresses the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. John stresses the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. Number five, I'd like you to write down John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John states the purpose. Why did I write this book? That the readers might believe in Jesus Christ. So this gospel is an evangelistic gospel. Its purpose is that people will read it and believe. And he makes it very, that's what he's saying in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I'm writing this down, I'm paraphrasing now, but this is what he's saying. I'm writing this down that people might believe. And that's why so often, not always, but so often, new believers who just come to know Jesus Christ, somebody gives them a gospel of John. Or somebody suggests, let's study the Gospel of John, because what it does is it lays out in, a, in an authoritative way, this is who Jesus is. You just put your faith in him. This is whom you now believe and trust and have confidence in, because it presents such an awesome picture of Jesus. And then number six, which is what I have said now several times, the thesis of the book is that Jesus is the God-man. I have a, on the top of page three, I have a little blank for authorship. It's John. This is John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, this is John, the, the author of the book of Revelation. This is John, the author of first, second, and third John. This is one of the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. Uh, this is, uh, this is the John who will be the only one of the original apostles who does not is not martyred. John becomes the bishop of Ephesus, and he dies in his mid-90s. Uh, he, will, he will disciple the entire next generation of church leaders. It's a tremendous amount of, of church history material outside of the Gospels, outside of the New Testament, validating who this is. And in terms of when it was written, it's probably written about 95 AD, by far the last of the four Gospels. 
Mark was the first one written in AD 49. The second one would have been Luke. The third one would have been Matthew. And the final one is John. And I, um, under that thesis, I'm not going to read all that to you. You can read that because I've said it now three times. The primary thesis of the book of John is that Jesus Christ is the God-man. All right. Any questions? Dr. Eckman, um, you, you say it was AD 95. That's right. Uh, right. Yeah. And was this the first that he wrote? Did first and second John come after that? First, uh, second, third John would have come before that. Would be what? Beyond before that. Before that. Yes. And they were written in Europe. They were written about 90, 91. And then the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and the last book of John was written in A.D. 96. Okay. John, John was put as he was uh, found guilty of sedition by uh, uh, the Roman Caesar, and he was put on a prison island called the Island of Patmos. And that's where he wrote the book of Revelation in A.D. 96. So John must have been in his 80s. That's correct. At the time that most of these were written. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. The estimate is John died in the late 90s. Um, he, was, he would have been in his 90s when he died. He was the only one of the original 11. Now, I'm not counting Judas there, obviously. The only one of the original 11 that was not martyred. All others were martyred, but John was not. And John discipled the whole next generation of church leaders. All of those are in the early uh, second century, the early 100s. Uh, uh, and uh, those names aren't important. You wouldn't probably heard them anyway. But very, very, he was an extremely important leader in the early church. Doctor. All right. Anything Ekman? else? Any other questions? Doctor Ekman. Yes. The um, the verses again that you mentioned in, in the fifth uh, distinctive. Points of, of John's gospel, the verses you mentioned. John again, chapter and... John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Is that is that the question? That is it. Thank you. Okay, Joe. Good. I just want to make sure I understood your question. All right. Now, if you are uh, if you're following in the notes. Um, on page three there, I give you, I, I won't do this for every chapter, uh, or the notes would be about 70 pages long, but I wanted you to have a pretty detailed breakdown of the first 18 verses of chapter one, uh, because this this cluster of verses, uh, it, it's really quite remarkable. John is jamming so much doctrine so much theology into these 18 verses. In addition, John is surfacing in these 18 verses the major themes that he's going to develop through the book. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is probably, other than probably Genesis chapter 1, this is probably the most important introduction to any of the books of the Bible. Uh, and I, I, I think I think I'm I'm, I'm pretty confident in, in that because it 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 front ends so many of the themes that John's going to develop in the book. 
And so you must take time in studying this. So let's start to study it together. And again, if you note in the little outline on page three, I've, I've broken it into four primary parts. You could even subdivide it further. But first, the first two verses, John wants to prove the eternal existence and character of the word. And you will see that's referring to Jesus. Then verses 3, 4, and 5, he wants to talk about the work of the word. And then thirdly, he wants to develop the witness of the word, which is John the Baptist, and how he connects with Old Testament prophetic scripture. And then finally, and it's the largest segment of these 18 verses, the appearance and preeminence of the word. And that, that becomes the substantive part of Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate God. And that's what he wants to develop. So with this overview that you can follow if you want in detail, let me read the first two verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in, or excuse me, verse 2, he was in the beginning. Stop. Now, let me say a word about the term word, because what does John mean by that? What is he doing with that? Why does he choose that term? The Greek word, and I'm sure you, you know all of that, the Greek term is logos, L-O-G-O-S, which was used by the Greeks in the Greco-Roman world as a title of the great philosophical principle that united all things. Uh, one of the very significant Greek philosophers in Alexandria, Egypt, used this term. So it was a term that was very familiar to the Greco-Roman world. This is the unifying principle of the world. For a Hebrew, for a Jew, to use the term word would bring to mind Genesis 1, where by the word of God, things are created. The Hebrew word is devar. We would bring it into English as D, as in dog, D-A-B-A-R, pronounced devar. God spoke, let there be light. God spoke, let there be the, the stars in heaven. God speaks in creation, in revelation. It is a way in which God reveals himself. So when John uses the term logos, he's speaking to the Greek who's going to understand this as the unifying philosophical principle of the universe. To the Jew, he's going to understand it as Genesis 1, the spirit being God, Yahweh Elohim, who creates out of nothing all physical things by the word of his mouth. And so, again, John is doing something which is marvelous. He's bringing the intersection of the two major worldviews of the people who first read this book, the Jew and the Greco-Roman person. 
and they both are going to understand what he's saying. The second observation I want to make is that John intentionally uses exactly the same phrase that begins the book of Genesis. You read the book of Genesis. The title of Genesis 1 is, In the Beginning, God Created the Heavens and the Earth. So John intentionally uses exactly the same phrase that begins the Bible. So in the beginning, you have the record of God, Yahweh, Elohim, Elohim chapter 1, Yahweh chapter 2. In the beginning, Yahweh, Elohim creates everything. All the physical elements of the universe, humanity as the image and crown of his creation, and marriage, which is the first institution he creates in Genesis 2. So John wants us to understand that the Lagos is there. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, though he existed. That Word was with God, and that Word was God. So right there in verse 1, you have the Trinitarian nature of God inferred. Remember our definition of God is Trinity. One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. So you have this extraordinary, it's absolutely mind-boggling and almost philosophically overwhelming that in the beginning, when everything was starting, was the Word. And the Word was with God. He was there participating in that creative work, and He was God. So if he was God, you have the eternal existence and the eternal character of God, present in, characterized by, the Lagos, the Word. And so, I mean, this is a mind-blowing introduction. You think you know who Jesus is? Let me explain to you who he is. You think you really have a comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is? Let me make sure. You must start with creation. We don't start with his incarnation. We start with creation. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. He existed. He was with God, the Trinitarian nature, one essence of three persons, and he was God, his essence. So you have his existence, his person, and his essence. That's what's in verse 1. I'll say this again. You have his existence. In the beginning was the Word. You have his person. He was with God. And you have his essence. He was God. And so this is a philosophical and theological introduction who is he? He's the Word, philosophically unifying principle of the universe according to the Greeks, the Devar of God, the Word of God who speaks things ex nihilo into creation. He's present, his person, and his essence. That's who I'm writing about. You think you know who he is? Let me explain. He was in the beginning with God. So that first two verses of this magnificent, marvelous introduction is, 
the eternal existence and the character of the Logos. He exists, he's per, his person, per, his personhood, and his essence. He is God. Now, verse 3, at verses 3 through 5, begins to stress his work. Now, this is really important because John introduces a number of themes that he wants to develop throughout the book. As he's introducing, you think you know who this is? Let me explain to you. All things were made through him. Now that all things means all things. See Genesis 1. See Genesis 2. Nothing that was made was not made without and through and by means of him. Now it says through him. That is the consistent proclamation throughout the books of the Bible that God God the Father carried out all of the creative activities that are denominated to God through the activity of the Son. Jesus makes much of this. You'll see this in John chapter 5. Jesus makes much of this. The cooperative, mutually interdependence of the Father and the Son in the creative work of the universe. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, in, in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2a and 2b, you see the Holy Spirit mentioned also. But John isn't talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's going to be talking about the Holy Spirit later on in the book. So all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John is saying it in such a way, anything, anything that was made was made through Jesus. He is the creative energy, the creative power through which God the Father made everything. And they, they, nothing is excluded. Now think about that. It's a physical universe, both the heavens and all the things you study when you study astronomy, and all the things you can't see in microbiology, the things that you can only study under the guise of a microscope, as well as the entire spiritual world, which would mean what the Bible calls the angels of God, both the good angels and the bad angels, those who rebelled and joined the rebellion with Satan, everything that was made has its source in Jesus. So you think, whoa, you think you know who he is? I want to make sure you really understand that I'm talking about the unifying principle of the universe, the, the, the one who speaks things into creation, and he's the agent the source the Father uses to bring everything into being, and nothing's excluded. Absolutely nothing is excluded here. So again, you think you know who Jesus is. Do you really know who Jesus is? This is particularly to an unbeliever. He is, John is presenting Jesus in a way that is absolutely astonishing. And John wants us to identify the creation of all things with Jesus. Then look at verse 4. In him was life. In him was life. And the life was the light 
of men. All right, now let's think about that for just a moment. In him was life. In, in him was physical life. In him is spiritual life. So Jesus is the source of physical life. And you go back to the Genesis account. It says that God breathed life into Adam and Eve. He breathed. That's, that's how their lungs began to work. God breathes in. But also, the book of Genesis, and indeed the Old Testament, speaks much of the spiritual life. And that spiritual life is also sourced in, in, in the Word. Now, what this is going to do is it's going to help us to understand that Jesus is not only the source of spiritual and physical life, but that life was the light of men. And you'll see the point of darkness is coming up in verse 5, which helps us to understand what he means. Okay, this is a little more difficult, but the light of men. Jesus is the revelation of God to men, to the human race. That revelation of God includes not only the essence of God, the character of God, but the moral law of God. God's character involves a moral, ethical element to it. That is what you see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Human beings are moral, ethical creatures. And God says to Adam and Eve, everything in the garden is yours. Everything. Do with it what you want. I'm trusting as dominion stewards of my world everything. But you are moral, ethical creatures. In the middle of that garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm asking you, don't eat from that. Everything else you can do. You have total freedom, total dominion authority, but you are moral ethical creatures because the moment you eat of that, you will die. You will experience separation from me spiritually and eventually physical separation of your body and soul, which is what physical death is. Then the rest of the Old Testament begins to unpack and reveal explicitly what the light of God's revelation to the human race involves in his moral, ethical set of standards. It will be summarized completely in the Ten Commandments. Why is this necessary? Because of verse 5. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now that is extremely important. Because the moment Satan rebelled against God, the Bible doesn't tell us when that happened. But the Bible does tell us in Genesis 3 that Satan, in the form of a serpent, Revelation 12, 9 tells us the serpent was Satan, that Satan shows up to challenge God's moral authority, to challenge God, 
And he says to Eve, um, can you eat of everything in the garden? Yeah. Uh, what about that tree? Well, we're not, supposed to, we're not supposed to touch it. And so immediately, what is Satan doing? He's challenging the moral authority of God. Satan, and this is what the Bible says of him, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. Over and over and over again, it tells us that. So this light that Jesus Christ represents, the revelation of God, not only his character, not only his essence, but his moral and ethical authority, shines in the darkness. Jesus Christ shines, exposes darkness for what it really is. It's deceptive. It's duplicitous. It lies. It represents rebellion. And the darkness does not overcome the light. So, again, a, a Greek reading this would understand it. They would understand that light versus darkness conflict. That was part of their philosophical system. A Jew reading this is going to immediately think of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and how that has developed throughout the Old Testament. As the serpent of old, Satan is leading this rebellion against God. So, I mean, this, these first five verses, uh, four verses, are astonishing verses. I mean, it's laying out in, in great theological depth, you think you know who he is? I want you to step back and get the 100,000-foot view of who he really is in terms of his person, in terms of his character, and in terms of his essence. And you must understand that he is the answer. He is the solution. He is the overcomer of this kingdom of darkness. And this kingdom of darkness is not going to overcome him. Indeed, he's going to overcome it, which, of course, is the reference to the great cosmic uh, struggle that you and I all know about, where Satan is challenging. Because the fundamental question, the fundamental question of history is who has the right to rule? Is it Satan? who is challenging the authority of God, or is it God, the creator and redeemer and sovereign Lord? Well, you know the answer to that. God has the right to rule, and he is proving that over and over again, and, of course, primarily through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Ooh, I've been talking a lot here. Any questions? This is magnificent stuff, yeah. isn't it? Yep. Amen. Um, I have uh, two. One has to do with the nature of uh, time and the word beginning in chapter one. Um, in the beginning was the word. In other words, it, 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 is this talking about the beginning in the same way that the beginning in Genesis talks yes. about the beginning? And yes. so it's a point in time. It's T zero, if you will. That yes. doesn't mean that he started there. No. It just means that he was present there. Okay. That's right. And, then, and it, it, it is, you, it, this, he's intentionally doing this. He wants to draw you back to Genesis 1-1. When the eternal God makes a decision to create all things in time, because as, as Genesis 1 tells us, God creates the elements in the heavens, the sun, moon, stars, etc., 
as a way for the human race to measure time. The heavenly bodies are the anchor for us in creating time. God creates time and gives us the way to measure it. And that is through, you know, well, you know what I mean, how the earth rotates and revolves around the sun, all that stuff. That's how we, and I mean, it's amazing. I just think that's quite profound that God is telling us in Genesis 1, I'm creating heaven. I'm also saying that's how you're going to keep time because I have created time. God is in effect saying that. So in the beginning is when the eternal God makes the decision to create the physical universe. And the word was there. He was with God, his person, and he was God, his essence. Thank you. And then the second one is on John 1, 5, the, the um, concept or word darkness. Um, what, what, is that, what is that word um, literally? Um, it, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have the Hebrew word on the tip of my tongue. I can look that up. But Wouldn't this be in the Greek? Uh, pardon me? Wouldn't this be in the Greek? No, no. Well, yes, but um, I'm thinking of the Hebrew word for darkness which is what it's drawing on, and the Greek word for darkness. I, I just don't have those either one of those okay. in my tongue. Thanks. But it, it, it has both a philosophical application. Mm-hmm. That's how a Greek, Greco-Roman person would understand it. But it also has a Hebrew application, how the Jew would understand it. But in both cases, it represents that, that cosmic dimension of what is evil in rebelling against what is good. And the metaphor that's used is light and darkness. Jesus will say later on in one of his I am discourses, I am the light of the world. Which both a Greek and a Hebrew, hearing that is going, oh, wow. I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's claiming. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an extremely important idea in introducing who this person Jesus is. You think you understand who he is? I want to really explain to you who he is. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't do that. Now, they talk about these things, but John is front-loading all this stuff. I want you to really understand who this Jesus is. I don't want you to bring him down to your categories. I want your categories to be brought up to him. You need to talk about, think about, and understand Jesus in terms of the eternal, infinite God. That's where you start thinking about Jesus, which is totally mind-boggling. <laughs> Dr. Ekman? Yep. The Koshek is the uh, darkness. Okay. okay. Good. Thank you. All right. I just looked at my clock, and I've kept you over. I apologize for that. I'm sorry. I got going there, and I didn't look at the clock. Uh, so are you guys with me? When we were doing some heavy stuff here, but you've had your, your lunch. You're all ready and geared up, so you've been inundated with biblical truth for the last hour or so. Well, this is what we're going to be doing now for the next several months, delving into the Gospel of John and this introduction that we're just starting. We have so much more to do with it. But this introduction that we're looking at does introduce what John wants to prove. And he'll use these terms throughout the book. It's, it's quite wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm excited about I love to teach the book of John. So we're going to dig into it next week. And um, we'll just uh, go as far as we can each week. So again, if you have 
a little bit of time, just read again, if you can, the first 18 verses of chapter one. It's just, these are marvelous verses that just help us to really understand, wow, I thought I knew who Jesus was. <laughs> and it really is a, is a great, great book of the Bible. Father, we're grateful for our study in the Word of God. Thank you for these men that are willing to take uh, an hour or so out of their, their Wednesdays to study with me. Thank you for their diligence, and I pray for them. I, I pray that these words in this, this gospel of John that we're now beginning will sink deeply into their hearts and minds, that they'll internalize it, that Holy Spirit, you will help them not only to understand it, but help them to welcome it and embrace it, that it, it does transform them from the inside out. This is, these are marvelous, marvelous verses that help us to begin to understand who is this Jesus that I trusted? Who is he? And it, it just is one of the most profound descriptions and declarations and arguments presented about Jesus in the whole Bible. So I thank you for the privilege we have of studying it. May these dear men be men of faith, men of God who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.